Welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today uh, is a student at Cornell University in the finance department, and he actually played bass when he was in high school and got to perform at Lincoln Center in New York City. Uh, Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much, Sadie. It is so good to be on the podcast. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. Um, I probably should ask, what year are you? I forgot to ask that beforehand. I am a second year finance PhD student uh, at Cornell in the Johnson Graduate School of Management. And it we actually, there's there, I have to be a little bit pedantic, but we just got a $150 million donation to create the Johnson College of Business. And then under that umbrella is the Johnson Graduate School of Management. So you I'm, it's a little disappointing they didn't call it Johnson & Johnson, but that is a different company <laughs> than the people who made their money that donated to us. So in the, I'm sure that I want to make everyone happy at Johnson. So I'm from the Johnson College of Business and the Johnson Graduate School of Management. So, so apologies to listeners had to endure that word salad, but I feel obligated to the people that are paying for me to be here. Right. It's not about being pedantic. It's about thanking our, our donors. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Johnson family. Um, so what are you drinking today? I am drinking a bottle of sparkling rosé that my mother gave me for Easter. It is called Cote Mas, or Ma. I'm not really good at my old French pronunciation. I used to know how to do this. Um, but it is a Produit de France. Um, it is a rosé brut. It is 70% Chardonnay grapes, 20% Chenin grapes, and 10% Pinot Noir grapes. And it's really good. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot more fancy than what I'm doing right now. I'm having a um, Voodoo Ranger 8-Hop Pale Ale from New Belgium. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty good. I wasn't quite ready for this much hoppy this early in the afternoon, but I'll, I'll survive. Uh, so let's talk about your research. You are in the Department of Finance. Um, what does research in finance even look like for a grad student? I think we all assume that finance is just like Wall Street or accounting. I don't think that most people know of the, like the in-between, what it's like between that. So that is a, that's a good question. And it's funny you mentioned accounting because I've actually never taken an accounting class. Um, and I didn't know much about accounting. But now that I'm here and I know some accounting PhD students, they point out to me that accounting is really about information disclosure, that, you know, that firms record data about their performance in a systematic way where everyone agrees on what the numbers mean and finance cares a lot about information as well i think that's something that i've learned more since i've been here that people really care about information and is there an information asymmetry in some sort of transaction who has information who doesn't who pays to get it um but finance research covers a couple of broad fields. Um, I would say that the two main ones are corporate finance and asset pricing. Um, and I would say corporate finance is a, more about the behavior and performance of firms. And asset pricing is more about the per, of behavior in markets. Um, and of course, the two are related because if a firm is publicly listed or traded, that it's traded on a market. And then there, so there's a lot of back and forth between asset pricing and corporate finance. 
Um, so how much of like the kind of reading you're doing looks at um, consumer behavior? I mean, because we were talking earlier, it almost becomes a behavioral economics thing, right? Where you're looking at these entities kind of almost as if they have their own behavior based on input and output, kind of like a biological system. It's funny you mentioned that because in a way, I feel like I don't think about consumers very often, or at least I don't think about consumers in the way that I, I would I don't think about consumers the way the general public thinks about consumers. Um, when I think about a consumer, I think of a random person, me, you, whoever, your neighbor, going to the mall and shopping at different stores and deciding how much they want to spend, what they want to spend it on, how they choose between different products. Um, and there is an element of that in finance, but finance in a way is so big that it's it's useful to think about who different players are. Um, and finance is very institutionalized in a way that, you know, if you look at who owns the shares of stock in a particular company, it's not really going to be a list of, you know, John Smith, Jane Smith, John Doe, Jane Doe. It's going to be BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, a lot of these major institutional investors who represent an aggregate a bunch of individual people, um, but that the behavior of these institutions is sufficiently different from those of their individual investors that it behooves us to look at the institutions and the investors. And so in a way, you get these different layers like an onion that you look at, okay, you look at a particular stock and you see who's you know who's in who are the major investors in that company from an institutional standpoint, and then like what do those institutions represent? Are they mutual funds, hedge funds, are they pension funds? Um, that I would say one of the recent developments in finance of the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years is this trend towards everything being invested through a fund. Um, and another way to put it is that there aren't that many random normal people that have significant stock holdings in individual company where people just, you know, read the Wall Street Journal and look at the stocks and say, okay, I want to invest in Pepsi or Caterpillar or IBM. But that doesn't happen very much anymore. It's so interesting because that's how they teach you in like high school economics. They're, like they teach you how to quote unquote play the stock market, but no mm -hmm. one... No one does that unless they have significant money that they're just like, ah, I bought stock in Google because I like the company and mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I want to support them. It's funny you mentioned that. And I guess I guess I should say at some point, just for the record, like nobody is paying me to promote or not promote their stock or their investment or whatever. Like whatever I say is just whatever I feel like saying. Um, <laughs> I have no I would say I have no financial conflict of interest to declare. Um, but this idea of stock picking it's funny because I feel like very little of my experience here has been about like, how do you pick a good stock? I think it's much more current in the way that people think about investing now to ask what funds or what baskets of stocks or what sectors mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that it seems, it, I would say it seems outdated to say I'm going to, just buy some Google stock. Um, right. Well, and you can also put in less money to, yeah, buy into a, like a, a fund or, or, a, or a, oh God, I don't even know what half these things are called, but they invest your money across multiple domains so that 
you know, if you put all your money in gold and gold tanks, you haven't just lost all your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say the popular way to, or I don't know if it's, it's becoming more popular. I would, I would say the smart way to invest the way that I invest is through index funds. I was about to ask you what your opinion was on index funds. So my short opinion is that they're good. And before I go any further, I will give an endorsement, which again, no one has paid me to give this endorsement, just a book that I read that I really liked and I think is very accessible to people that don't have, like you don't have to have a strong finance background. Um, This book is called The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. Um, And it's written by... Helene Olin and Harold Pollack. Um, and basically, so Harold Pollack is a, I think he's a sociology professor at the University of Chicago. So he's not formally a finance professor, but he just was looking into how to invest his money, asking his finance colleagues. And so he collected a bunch of best practices from finance experts in academia and outside of academia. And he was like, you know what, I can write all the all the advice I need on one index card. And so this this the list of like seven things that like to do. Yeah. So this, so the card, I don't remember the original card, but the, the book is a, like the card is 10 things and you can find it circulating the internet. And then he wrote a book about the card, which explains why all the 10 rules are the 10 rules, which I of course want to know why the rules are the rules. So I bought the book. Um, So, you know, you can just look at the card and follow the rules blindly. Um, but they're all very logical and I would say index funds have become very popular for good reason. And I think one of those things is that people have become more cognizant of the fees charged in investing and Mm -hmm. how much of a difference they can make that I think on first glance, you could look at something like a 1% fee and be like, Oh, it's just 1%. That's not that consequential, but a 1% annual fee on an investment versus a 0.1% fee, that can mean a difference of ten dollars or $100,000 over the course of your retirement portfolio, depending on your income and how long you're investing for. But that these fees that seem small can actually be very consequential. And that I think it's important to be aware of that and to ask, you know, whoever your financial person is, ask them about fees. Because there's, I would say there's no reason to be paying 1% annual fees on an investment these days because there's a lot of really good simple options that are much cheaper than that in terms of fees. I think people just get overwhelmed by dealing with their finances and trying to figure them out. I mean, I know that I've been working on setting up a, well, I have a Roth IRA set up, but like understanding what makes that different than a regular IRA and how I can put in money and how, when I can get it out and when I should, you know, pull it out. Like, a lot of this seems so complicated. And do you think that it is purposely kept obtruse or that it's just, it's such an old system that has layers upon layers that it's made it more complex for like an individual to understand what to do with their money? Um, I would say that there are, there are people and actors out there that I think are truly, I want to, I want to say they're altruistic. Like everyone that's, in the finance industry has some sort of self-interest, but I think there's very honest individuals and firms that are doing, you know, thing, everything above board, nothing shady, and it will still be complicated. Um, I think there is an inevitable amount of complication just because 
your retirement savings is a humongously important thing that this is people's livelihoods that, you know, we have social security, but I would say social security is not a particularly attractive lifestyle. If that is your only source of income after the age of 65. Um, Absolutely. And so when you're, and so basically you're dealing with people's livelihoods and health in, in, in what will be a state where they are of poorer health and limited mobility and that it takes years to accumulate. And so because of that, it's very important and people really care about it. And so there's all, I think the reason there's a lot of rules is because you have to account for all these different possibilities of what can and can't happen. Um, It's like planning for anything in the future where there's a lot of uncertainties that you're dealing with. But in this case, the certainties are like, you will be old, you will not be able to get income other ways as easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That probably makes it more complex. Yeah. So it's things like the, that the government has set up these tax structures where you get a tax break for saving for retirement in certain vehicles. Um, But the government doesn't want to lose too much money on those tax breaks. Um, And then there's rules, you know, about like spousal benefits, you know, if you marry someone and then you die, you know, how does that get transferred to them? If you die before the age of retirement and you're unmarried, who gets those things? Um, There, I think for Roth IRAs, there's a, there's a little tax credit where if you, our first time home buyer, you can take out, I think, $10,000 penalty free and tax free. Yeah, it's, I thought it was 30000 but I could be totally wrong. I don't know. I, didn't, I did not look that up. It's a surprisingly large amount of money, I is what I remember. Yeah, I did not look that up before I said it. Um, <laughs> I we can just, add that in the show notes. <laughs> we, can, yes. we can put Yes, just general, general advice. If you are thinking about acting on something I say, please Google it for yourself first. Because I did like maybe an hour of checking my notes before I talked to, on this podcast. So there's a lot more you have to do for yourself. Like do your own due diligence. That is a very important finance lesson. You have to know for yourself that it's good. One of those trust but verify things, trust right? Trust but verify. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so how when people ask, like find out that you're getting your graduate degree in finance, what is like the first assumption they make about like what you're doing? Um, I don't know. It's funny because usually I'll, I'll, if someone that I haven't spoken to before, like, oh, I'm a finance PhD, so like, oh, that's cool. And I think people don't quite know what to think about it. Um, but I've talked to, I've talked to friends and professors and a lot of them say, people ask them what stock they should buy, which of course <laughs> brings, you, brings us back to this whole idea of stock picking is outdated and that index funds are much more smart and wise than stock picking. Um, I have, I had a professor for my, in my undergrad at university of Georgia. I think she's a health economist and she studies people caring for the aging parents and people would ask her which stock to pick. And it's like, she's a smart that's person. That's not even close to what she's her, studying. That's, though. that's not her area of professional academic expertise. Um, and I think to me, it just reveals that to the general public, if you're in economics or finance, people look at you as like, Oh, you do money stuff. Um, and they think about stocks as money stuff and therefore you're going to know what's a good stock to pick. I am in finance and I still can't tell you a good stock. Not, not that I'm hiding it is that I don't know it. And I don't, <laughs> and, and also that one of the, one of those is, is it's not worth the time and investment to try to pick stocks when you can just pick index funds, which are much simpler that you can take that time and do something else with it. Like spend it on your own work or 
relax or spend time with your friends and family. Those are valuable things that I think sometimes we lose sight of when we're trying to be really objective and quantify costs and benefits of all these different things. So like, you know what? Time is valuable and time spent with family, friends, personal activity, whatever, like that is valuable. And if you're spending hours and hours a day trying to research the best stock, you're losing that time to something else. And it's hard to quantify because your family doesn't charge you to hang out with them, but Mm -hmm. it's something you're missing out on. And I think people should keep that in mind. Yeah. Quality of life is, I mean, if we're not really trying to maximize money, we're trying to maximize quality of life across the longest time span. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would I would argue is what people should do. That's not what everyone does do. But. Well, I think that's partially why economists invented this concept of utility. That you know, and if you take an, an, a class in economics, especially microeconomics, you learn about utility maximization, and and utility is sort of this rough stand-in for happiness in a way, where if it's basically the answer of if you set up your problem as I want to maximize wealth, then all your results from that setup are going to be like, oh, you should spend all your time working and earning money and you should never spend any money and you should never take vacation. And then you look at that like, oh, well, that's actually a really dumb outcome because we do want to spend some time with ourselves. And then utility is this quasi-currency that is able to convert fun time and work time into the same measuring scale. But hmm. it's obviously imperfect. Yeah. Well, yeah. Most, <laughs> most such uh, tools are. Which also... If I may point out, and maybe I'm skipping ahead, I don't know, but I think that one of the debates about between rational finance versus behavioral finance or even rational agent economics versus behavioral economics is this idea of what is rational. And to people with an economic mind frame, which I would say is economists, finance professors, and people in that, you know, I would say accounting professors probably in there or marketing or whatever, that if you think about utility maximizing agent, people say a rational actor is one that maximizes their utility over some time frame and some set of choices. Um, and then they say, oh, well, if you pick something that's not what the model predicts, then it's an irrational choice. But then I think there's a counterpoint of, well, what if we just do a better job modeling? What are your true incentives? What do you really, what do you truly care about? You know, even if it's something that's hard to quantify, like personal time, that in some way, if you're maximizing your personal time that's valuable to you, then maybe you are utility maximizing and we're just not good at measuring it. And I think that debate about measuring what gives people utility, I think that's a, in my opinion, a big driver of whether things are behavioral or rational. Can you like talk a little bit more about behavioral versus rational? Is rational the idea of like if everyone computed decisions almost like a computer based on like a like a pure cost benefit analysis and behavioral is more about humans are not always they don't always look rational because their decisions are based on factors we haven't accounted for? Is that the difference? I think, I think that's a really good characterization of it. Um that this idea of rational economics or a rational agent is that you do have this humongous equa- you know, multi-equation model in your brain and that you're constantly solving the model and spitting out optimal choices and then you act in according to those optimal choices. So it could be some model of how many minutes should I spend playing with my kids this morning? And it's like, ding, 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 compute, 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 37.6 <laughs> minutes with your kids is the optimal amount of time. You're like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And it's like, and the thing is, obviously, we don't actually think like that. 
But the reason that the utility framework is a useful framework from an academic perspective is that it does give us testable, falsifiable uh, predictions that we can take to data. That, you know, we may say, oh, well, I didn't think about my utility function when I decided to eat tacos today, or that, or that I decided to leave class early today to go do whatever. But we can set up a utility maximizing framework where we say, we predict that you would do this and then compare that to what you actually do. So it sort of sidesteps how the brain works, but it does give us something that we can objectively predict and then see yeah. if it's true or not. You're still modeling behavior. I mean, there are plenty of psychologists who also are interested in creating more accurate models, like representations of behavior, and they basically train a model or teach it, like set up a model based off of previously collected data, and then they can make a new hypothesis, you know, like, oh, based on this model, we expect that on Friday, most people take a half day, you know, for example, in mm -hmm. finance, and then compare it to actual results, and then, you know, see if that's true or not, and then alter the model. Exactly. I think I think almost every field that has to work with a lot of data or has very hard questions is relying more and more on models, especially just because we have the computational power to do it now. Well, I think that to me, when I think about models, is that this is not original thought. This is the thought that I like collected from listening to a bunch of smart people and thinking about it, that a theoretical model gives us a way to interpret the data that we have. Because we live in an era where there's more data than we know what to do with. And yeah. <laughs> when you take, even if you just download some data from the internet and you put it in R and you run some basic regressions on it, when you set up, when you tell the computer what regression equation you want it to estimate, you're typing in a model at that point. It could be, and I think sometimes we miss that because sometimes our models are obvious. That, that it seems so obvious to say that, I don't know, if you push a basketball harder with your hand, that it's going to go farther. Like, there's a model yeah. implicit there, even if you don't think about it. Um, so or models... even like statistics testing is a model because we're mm -hmm. comparing what, how likely is it that we got a result where these two groups are different in a t-test um, compared to the groups aren't different. So what you're doing is you're running your data compared to the model of the two groups are not different. Yeah, and, that, that, and you also assume a distribution of people within those groups, that you assume those groups are that the same distribution of the population and that you know that they have the same variance, whatever, all these different statistical moments of measuring how diverse or spread out the people are versus you know what, what do we expect on average. So yeah, you're right that models... Models are everywhere, even if we don't think about it, um, which would be a really fun quote to take out of context to like sell this particular <laughs> podcast. Um, but yeah, model gives us a framework to think about data. And without a model, it's really, I would say that in my experience going to finance seminars, when people present a bunch of data, if they don't have a model, people are less likely to just go along with the conclusions but because they want to see some sort of model-based motivation for why are you looking at this relationship why are you estimating this coefficient you know why are these two things related and when you are explicit about where your assumptions are okay i think this this is my dependent variable this is an independent variable here are the things i'm controlling for um, then it gives people a more rigorous way to be explicit about what matters and what doesn't matter yeah no i think that's completely accurate. So then 
in your particular research, how much of your time is spent in front of a computer trying to organize your thoughts into a model and comparing it to data? Like, what do you really – like, when you go into the office every day, what are you doing with most of your time? So, as a second-year student, um, I think that I'm still in the process of trying to identify a really good question or a really good set of questions to ask for my future dissertation research. Um, so one thing that I'm interested in is ETFs, which is short for exchange traded funds. Um, an ETF is a lot like a mutual fund, but it's also different in some key ways. So okay, well maybe you give a short explanation of a mutual fund too. Okay. Just in case. <laughs> so yeah, so we'll we'll start with mutual funds because it's it's interesting because I had heard of ETFs before I started in this program, but I didn't know much about them. But I am I find myself surprised by how many smart versed people I meet that have literally never heard of ETFs, which is not a dig at people who haven't heard of them. It's just me realizing that the world the, the bubble I live in is more of a bubble than I thought it was. Um, mm-hmm. That if you if you turn on CNBC any day, you'll see someone discussing ETFs, but there aren't that many people that watch CNBC um, or at least like turn it on at home or watch it at the gym when you're on the stationary bike, which I admit I have done before. Um, <laughs> so, but I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept of mutual fund. So mutual fund basically works like this, that a bunch of people want to be able to invest in some sort of investment strategy. Now mutual fund could have an actively managed strategy where they say, we're going to try to beat the market. We're going to use some sort of secret sauce and we're going to make great returns. So you could have an actively managed mutual fund. You could also have a passively managed mutual fund or, or, or an index fund where the mutual fund says, okay, we're just going to follow the S&P 500 and we are going to just try to match the market on that index. And, you know, what we do every day, we're not going to try to think about how to beat the market. We're just going to be the market. And that's going to be a lot less work. And that's going to mean we're going to be able to charge lower fees, which is that type of investing strategy has become a lot more popular. And I think for good reason. Okay. But regardless, a mutual fund is just, I don't have enough money to have, you know, buy a bunch of stock if I thought I was still going to buy my individual stock and have a diverse po- portfolio where I'm not, you know, only buying one type of stock. And so I I pool my money with a bunch of other people. And we have a company who who plays the market for us either actively, which is like the what you were talking about, or just follows the market by investing in like the S&P's index stocks. Yes, yes, that's that's exactly right. That a mutual okay. fund is when a like like and like you said, to buy an individual stock in all of the S&P 500 stocks would require you to buy 500 stocks. And I don't know exactly what the price is to buy one share of all S&P 500 stocks, but it would be like thousands and thousands of dollars. Um and then you, not only that, but you would incur the cost of trading all 500 of those stocks and having to go out, find it, and you know, decide how you're going to trade it. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas it, with the mutual fund, a bunch of people with not a ton of money can pool their money together. They can hire someone who's a good fund manager, and they say, okay, we're going to give you all our money, which I think the total size of mutual fund assets in the United States is around $16 trillion. Um, so there's oh. a, there's a lot of money in mutual funds. I say okay, we're gonna give you. I, I, let me let me make sure I 
am like in the ballpark here. I think total size of mutual fund assets in the United States is around 16 trillion. And the number of mutual funds is, I want to say between eight and 10,000 in the United States. Um, and ETFs, which I'll get to in a minute, the total size of ETF assets is like $2 trillion in the United States. And there's maybe a thousand to 2000 ETFs. Um, so mutual fund, bunch of people pool their money, give it to a smart person, and then the smart person says, I'll invest for you, and then I'll distribute the returns proportionally, and then I'm going to charge a small fee to run the fund for you. So if you can only put $100 into a mutual fund, which is not a real amount that you can put into most mutual funds, you will get the percentage return as if you'd put $100 evenly split amongst what everybody else was invested in, too. Yes. That, so the nicer a mutual fund and at ETF is that in theory, you should get the same percentage return regardless of how much you put in. And reality is pretty close to that ideal. Um, there's For most mutual fund companies, there's a little bit of a bias that like if you put in a ton of money, they will give you a slightly lower fee just because you're giving them so much upfront. That, mm-hmm. Like with Vanguard, I think for their S&P 500 mutual fund, like if you are between if you have like ten thousand dollars if you're under ten thousand dollars it's like point one six percent if you're between ten thousand and five hundred thousand I think it's point oh five percent and then I think there's a level up to ten million that's like point oh four percent and then it's like up to a billion as point oh two percent so it's a little bit of the rich get richer and that they have less fees taken out but for the most part you're getting, bit of that. you're getting a lot of money back. Well I'd say I mean. it's a little bit of that but I would say that I would sort of say the the mutual fund fee structure of index funds is not a driver of inequality in the United States, and that the savings the the difference between 005 percent and 002 percent it's not nothing, but it's pretty small. Um, and that there's and I would also say there's a ton of really rich people that have investments in more expensive funds, so they're not even taking advantage of the savings that they could have. Yeah. That makes sense. So then how are these different than the ETFs? So the so the big difference between mutual funds and ETFs is um, that mutual funds don't trade on markets, that if you want to buy shares of a mutual fund, you have to go to the fund provider directly, and that they do all their transactions at 4 o'clock each day. So if you go to a mutual fund at 10.30 a.m. and you say, I want to put in $100, well, they'll just say, They'll like write that. I'm speaking figuratively that they will write it down (laughs) and then they'll just wait till four o'clock and see what the market says at four o'clock. And then they'll calculate how many shares you get for a hundred dollars. Whereas an ETF, an ETF trades like a stock throughout the day. So you can buy an ETF immediately in the market and you just buy it from the market and you don't have to wait till four o'clock. So you can see intraday price movements in an ETF that you don't see in a mutual fund. Um, Does that mean that they're more they're more likely to be volatile? Not that mutual funds can't be volatile, but that because you can see change over a smaller time scale, it's it's more likely to be played with. Like, do people actively monitor their ETFs and and fiddle with them, or are they? I don't know. Does that question make sense? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually interesting because I haven't. That's a question I haven't really thought about that much. But when you're thinking about volatility, the important thing to keep in mind is that you have the same measuring scale. So if you want to ask, are ETFs more volatile than mutual funds? Well, because mutual funds only have daily closing prices, then to do the comparison to ETFs, you have to look at ETFs 
daily closing prices and then compare those two to each other and look at that volatility. Um, but I think because the vast majority of ETFs are passive funds that they just try to match a market index, um, I would say that ETFs are the volatility of ETF is very close to volatility of its underlying index on a daily basis. Um, and one of the reasons that that happens is that ETFs have this mechanism, which this is a this is a little bit in the weeds, but it's one of the big things about ETFs that makes them weird, special, interesting, whatever, is that ETFs really sort of are a two-stage process. That there's the ETF sponsor, who would be someone like Vanguard or BlackRock. Then there are major institutions that can trade directly with the fund sponsor. And then there's the broader market, which is where normal people like us play. Um, so, so say BlackRock has a S&P 500 ETF. And if you are another institution, I don't know, JP Morgan, whoever, that you can look at the market and you can look at the price of the S&P ETF, the BlackRock is offering you. You can also look at what is the actual price of the S&P stocks aggregated together as a basket. And in theory, those two things should be the same price because they contain the same cash flows that you can either own the ETF that owns the stocks or you can own the stocks directly. And like those should be the same. But on, but on occasion, those two prices may diverge in some way. And so large institutions, which ETFs call authorized participants, these large institutions can actually take the basket of stocks to the ETF provider and say, hey, we want to give you this basket of stocks and you give us the equivalent number of ETF shares that this basket is worth. And that process is called creation and redemption. And so through that process, because other major players can swap the ETF for the underlying back and forth, that helps to keep the price in line with its underlying. Um, and the 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 basis of that is a rule called no arbitrage, which is very, it's very talked about in finance. Like it's a foundational, I would call it a force almost, um, this force of no arbitrage. And basically what no arbitrage says is that if you have two products that have the same cash flows, they should cost the same price. Otherwise, so arbitrage is artificially making one cost more than the other? It's Isn't not necessarily artificial. Ar arbitrage is something that can arise from market behavior it's not necessarily something that someone has to create but the idea of arbitrage is that if there are two products that have the same cash flows and they're different prices that difference will get eliminated really quickly because someone which is probably a computer or hedge fund someone will buy the cheap one and sell the expensive one because if they're the same product then there's no there's no risk involved the, the, this okay. idea of arbitrage is it's a risk-free profit yeah, there's um I think there's like a Planet Money episode where they talk about arbitrage and where people were making a living by buying products in bulk for really cheap off of Amazon and then selling them at the retail value which was a little bit higher mm -hmm. and that they were that's arbitrage, right? Where they're it, it eventually evens out the system because all the cheap stuff gets sold um or gets bought up to be sold at this higher price and eventually the people figure out how to level off the market. Does so that make sense? I would say that example is close to arbitrage, but it's not exactly arbitrage. Just be okay. So this, this example of if you buy something in bulk on the internet and then you go resell it at a higher price to retail customers, it's mm -hmm. not quite arbitrage because there is still some risk that you won't get all of your wholesale products sold. 
and this is something that a lot of stores face every day. Um, so arbitrage, what, I guess what I'm saying, arbitrage is capturing something slightly different than that. Because when you buy bulk and then you sell retail, you are running the risk that you won't sell all of it. And then you'll be stuck holding some inventory that you don't want to hold. And so if you make money from that, it's not risk-free. Um, the, the best, or I guess the purest example of arbitrage would be if I could buy a $1 bill for 99 cents and sell it to you for a dollar. Okay. That, that example is pure arbitrage because those are two things that have the same inherent value and that there's no risk to me from buying dollar bills at 99 cents a pop and selling them to you for a dollar. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. There are lots of terms in finance I clearly didn't know as well as I thought I did. Yeah. No, it, it, like I said, there is some, there's a lot of jargon. And it can be confusing just because some of them have some nuance to them. But there is a reason for that one. And I, I like a lot of words. There are a reason that they exist. It's just a matter of how much do we really need them? And how, can yeah. we, how can we be precise in explaining what they really mean? And how much time do you want to spend explaining it to people who are outside your field versus those within your field? Exactly. <laughs> Which is always always the issue. Um. But where were you going with uh, – so ETFs can be used by these verified players. You had a different yes, name these, for them. Yes, these authorized participants or the, or, the ling, or the lingo is APs because we like to use acronyms. <laughs> so many acronyms. Yeah, we, oh, these APs. Um, so, yeah, so these authorized participants, they can – like I said, these are huge institutions. This is not, these are not just random people. These right. huge institutions who can literally buy – shares in all the S&P 500 stocks, they can they can look at the market. And they so let's say that they look at the ETF of an S&P 500 and say, oh, this ETF is overpriced. That what it's trading for is more expensive than the equivalent basket of stocks in the S&P. Well, mm-hmm. what they will do is they can, they're effectively, they can sell that ETF share, which is too expensive, and then they can buy all the underlying, which is relatively cheap. And whatever that difference is, that's a risk-free profit because those two things are worth the same. Okay. That makes sense. I was just doing a bunch of hand motions as I explained that, and I realized that no one can see them. <laughs> but there's there's a lot of hand motions that go with explaining arbitrage profits. One hand right, is this high- would make a great like a uh, chalk talk or something. Yeah, one hand is higher than the other hand, and then there's a space between the two hands, and that's free money. And so, selling the overpriced one and then buying the the true to market one is mm-hmm. the the benefit you're getting. You're that's closing the, the gap between and the then, two hands. And yeah, so the way that that gap gets closed is that as people sell the expensive one, it will push the price down, and as you buy the cheap one, it pushes that price up, and eventually those two prices will meet again. And there'll be no gap, and then there's no more arbitrage opportunity. And voila, the the law of no arbitrage has forced two prices that diverge to come back to one. That's awesome. Yeah, that I had never heard about these ETFs before. I knew about mutual funds, I knew about index funds, but that's really interesting that they how they function. I mean, I think I follow. <laughs> so, here's, so here's the thing. Here's one of the reasons why I think ETFs are interesting, and why I think that they merit more research and study is that because they do have this instantaneous intraday movement and activity in a way that mutual funds don't have what you're able you can track the price of the etf in its basket all the time 
during the trading day. And then the question is, what happens if there's some sort of shock to the ETF or the underlying? How does that shock get transmitted through the ETF? Because there have been a there was there's been a couple instances where the trading on ETFs gets really screwy for no apparent reason, like related to the underlying. And it's the main example is from August 2015, where the market, I think it was August 24, 2015, the market opens and within like 30 minutes, like hundreds of ETFs have like halted trading and people are like, what is going on? And there have been some explanations about it or some research done to what happened, but it's not clear to me that we've been able to prevent that from happening again. Or it's not clear to me like if there's a clearly identifiable thing that like, oh, this is what causes this haywire behavior. Right. Is there a sign that we can know if this is going to be an issue again in the future? Exactly. So, I mean, people have put up a couple of different ideas like, hey, well, maybe we should look at this, that, whatever. But I would not say there's like a consensus like, okay, this is the thing we need to look out for. Yeah, I think that that's a, an area that is ripe for study, it sounds like to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you think so. I think they're really interesting. It's, I think they're fun because it's something that matters to normal people just trying to invest their money and save for retirement. And also it has these really, it has a bunch of weird, quirky details that make it fun to study and on a deeper level. Yeah, it's both theoretical and like clearly applicable. Yeah, to like, real like life. I guess I guess a, a, a contrast would be like telling people that they should try to find low fee index funds. It's a very useful piece of advice, but it's not necessarily an interesting research topic because it's like, okay, we sort of established that. And it's like, okay, yeah, we're done. Like Yeah, we have good evidence. We're pretty sure about that. There's not a lot of new ways to say that. Uh, like, yeah. yeah, we know that fees are bad and that if you have the same investment, a lower fee is better than a higher fee. Um, which is not to say like, I there's there's a little bit of people trying to come up with low fee investments that have weird products they're investing in, which that is bad. But I would say those are rare, and that really personal finance doesn't have to be as complicated as it looks, because if you just pick a super simple index fund, follow the S and P five hundred or the Russell one thousand or whatever and just let it ride, you're going to get a pretty good investment outcome. That, or, or another way to look at is a lot of funds that try to beat the market actually miss. So if you just beat the market, you're going to end up all right. Right. And even when you do beat the market, that's a temporary state and you can end up losing the next round. Yes. Actually, that, is a, that, that effect is stronger than you may realize. Um, I was going back through notes from a class at ITA on behavioral finance and investments. Um, and people have looked at like, okay, when a fund beats the market, what happens to them in the, like the subsequent few years? And almost never do they keep beating the market after that. That it's really hard to beat the market multiple years in a row. It's just, I don't know if it's a skill thing or a luck thing, but it's really hard and rare to beat the market consistently multiple years in a row. Just, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And more importantly, it doesn't happen in a way where we can identify it in advance. If there's not a predictable way to find if you beat the market this way, it'll be consistent for the next three years and then you should pull your money and find someone else. There's yeah. no there's there, no good model for that. There's yet. no way to do that that we know of. And there's no way to look at just 
look at the universe of funds that exist today and be like, pick the top 10% of funds next year. It's hard to do. Yeah. Well, do you have any less things that you want to tell our listeners or that you feel like you missed and you didn't get to talk about or? Um, I'm glad I got to talk about ETFs because I want to do my research on them. So if there's a great public clamoring to learn more about ETFs, that'll make my research look better and help me get a better job. So <laughs> everyone just tell all your friends about ETFs. Tell me you heard they're crazy and they're awesome. Um, they will not give you better vacation. Uh, they will not give you bigger muscles. Uh, no promises there, but they are cool. You should look into them. Um, and also, if any of my future professors or colleagues are listening to this, please know that you can just look at this as a sign of my growth from whatever I learned from this point on. Um, In case you said anything wrong. And if you said everything right, then clearly you were always brilliant. Yeah, right? That's how that exactly. works. Exactly. I mean, I feel like... <laughs> I feel like I gave a good overview of like what I look at, what I see. Um, but it is interesting for me to look back at like the things that I thought about two years ago versus what I think about now or like the what I understand now versus what I understood then. Like I can see in myself the growth that I've had and it's exciting because I feel like that growth is going to continue as I get further along in my research and, you know, understanding more of the literature and who else is out there that I don't. I don't feel like I'm an expert, but I think about the way that I understand my field relative to the general public. I feel like I do have a fairly high level of knowledge and expertise, which is so is humbling in a way because it's it's like a responsibility. Like I would feel bad if I went and told people to invest all their money in gold because I think that is a legitimately bad strategy and like that can hurt people. That if you have bad investment decisions or you get bad advice, that can cost you serious money and so mm -hmm. i feel responsible to like tell you what i think is truly in your best interest that you know i don't have a financial interest whatever you do um and that it's cool and exciting and scary all at the same time like people care about their money for whether they're altruistic or self-centered what people care about money and i want to make sure they get it right I think that's a, a great note to end on. Um, so I want to say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast and leave us a review either on iTunes, Google Play, or however else you're listening to us right now. Because uh, your review helps me reach a larger audience. And I get to find even more interesting guests like Sam today from on the show. Um, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at PHDrinking. My personal account is at Sadie Witt. And Sam, did you have a way you wanted listeners to be able to find out more about you and your work on ETFs? Just, I don't have a working paper yet. I'm trying to get some data on that. But just Google me. Type in Cornell Johnson Sam Hempel. It's H-E-M-P-E-L. I have a Twitter account. I tweet mostly about sports and I read mostly about finance. Um, <laughs> but you'll find my LinkedIn. I have a page on the uh, Johnson website. A nice little professional headshot, headshot with a coat and tie. Um, my advisor is Maureen O'Hara, spelled just like the actress. She's a total boss. She's awesome. Look her up too because I, feel, I owe a lot to her. She's been really helpful and she's just done amazing, amazing work. So look her up too. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. And um, thanks again for joining me on the show. Thank you so much, Sadie. I've had a lot of fun and a solid glass and a half of rosé. So I'm really happy too. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and to all you listeners out there, cheers. Thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. Take care.